There's a lot of words people are using to characterize this season that we're in. They're speaking of it as unprecedented and extraordinary and world-changing and that could be true but might I suggest another word that would be apt how about the word weird it's not as vivid as a word as those other words certainly not as many syllables but it's still apt right we are what four or five weeks into being mostly separated from one another that hasn't happened in our lifetime uh, we're here now what in our fourth week of trying to conduct a worship service the gathered community even though we're scattered across far places across this region and if you're looking in from elsewhere who knows where you're coming from that's weird to be sure it's all weird the fact that we're doing all of this by looking at another screen like we needed more screens in our life isn't it weird that we're allowing ourselves to celebrate one of the most holy days of the Christian calendar by looking at a screen that's weird. It's all weird. Weird like dogs howling during an eclipse. Weird. Uh, weird like the duck-billed platypus. Weird Weird like Napoleon Dynamite playing tetherball with himself. Weird. Or even weird like wearing a bow tie in a forest. Weird. It's all weird. Now why am I harping on this word weird? We for the most part, try to avoid weird. We don't like weird. Other people can be weird. We prefer not to be weird. Now, operative words that we are all trying to be in align with is mainstream. Mainstream is good, weird is bad. Um, we wanna be on the right side of history, not on the wrong side of history, not with you weird, lunatic, fringe people. Nobody likes weird. Avoid weird at all costs has sort of become an unspoken axiom among us. It's the way it is and even the people that maybe make a living off of or like being weird you know what you know what they do when they go home at night they like to be normal they don't like to be weird weird is a thing for a certain amount of time the reason I'm harping on weird is because there's a name I've shared with you in recent months her name is Tara Isabella Burton she's a um, prolific author she's written quite a bit uh, she's a Christian and she wrote an article a few months ago entitled weird Christian Twitter which is a topic unto itself that we will not get into at this moment. But the essential argument that she's making is this, is that when it comes to Christianity and weirdness, those two things are inseparable. You can't pull them apart. And if you try, they cease to be true. And she puts it as bluntly as this. If Christianity is not both true and weird, why believe in it or identify with it at all? Once Christianity abandons its fundamental weirdness, then there is no reason to choose to sit in a pew for an hour or two on a Sunday rather than, say, going to Soul Cycle or practicing a more immediately beneficial form of self-care. The only Christians left in the end may be the weird ones. For all the reasons I've shared, this whole thing is weird, and Christianity in and of itself, if it ceases to be weird, it's not true. And know who knew that? Paul. If it's not weird and it's not true, then it's worthless and we're to be pitied among all people. Why is that? Why must it be weird at the same time that we think that it's true? That's our question in front of us. We're going to look at a passage in which the weirdness of this faith is on full display. We're going to see 
what's weird about it. We're going to ask why is that weird, but really we want to get to this one question is that why does it matter if it's weird and why would you not want it to be otherwise? We want to listen to the moment shortly after Jesus is risen and consider why weirdness is something both essential and beautiful and glorious about this belief. So I wonder if you might stand and hear this first moment, the earliest moments after his resurrection. Our central text for today can be found in the Gospel of John, chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. The disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener? She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. 
Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. The weirdness of this moment shortly following the resurrection before the sun is up, the weirdness begins with the women, so to speak. Cool your jets, it's not what you think I mean. It begins with a woman, her name is Mary Magdalene, and you might say it's weird because this is only the second time her name has been mentioned in the entire account of John's Gospel. In fact, in all the Gospel accounts, she kind of shows up late, is mentioned a little bit, and everybody's supposed to know who Mary Magdalene is, and yet neither of these Gospel people end up describing or explaining her story. That's weird in and of itself. But what makes this weird is that she's a woman and she is named in every gospel account as one of the first witnesses, one of the first people to offer testimony that he's risen. And to us today in 2020, you might say, and what's wrong with that? And we would say nothing, but we aren't then. And th what was then was this. If you're a woman, your testimony was immediately and inherently considered inferior to that of a man. Don't throw stones, it'll only hit the screen. But in that day also, your testimony, if you're a woman, wasn't even admissible in court. It was the nature of the culture. And this gospel that John is telling, he's out to say, I'm here to tell you what happened, why? So that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. If you're trying to produce an account that's trying to encourage belief, it already has certain strikes against it. You're saying that God became a man, really. And then you're saying that this man died and was risen from the dead. Oh, really? It's already got strikes against it. It already has liabilities. So you want to throw in here that the very first person to verify or authenticate that his promise that he would be risen from the dead is from a woman. Really? You want to add even more incredibility to this task? And sure enough, there it is. And that's weird. And what adds to the weirdness in that moment is, you know, she goes and tells two disciples what had happened, and we'll get to them in a minute, but she stands outside the tomb for a while, and finally she ducks her head down into this tomb that's been kind of either dug into the ground or in a cave, and what does she see? Get ready for the weirdness. She sees two angels. Angels. Two angels. Bright, luminous figures sitting on either end of where Jesus was sleeping. Angels. Really. For those of you that ever might have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, then you might remember how the Ark was well reproduced from Spielberg's memory of what he found in the Old Testament. He did it well, he nailed it to a T, and what is there on the top of the Ark? Two angels staring at each other with their wings out in front of them. And that thing, that case, that top of the Ark was known as the mercy seat, where atonement for sin would be produced, where it would be accomplished. That's there, and man, the symbolism is rich, but any way you slice it, it's weird, but that's who she sees. And she even has a brief conversation with them. The weirdness is already at a full tilt. But what is the, the center of the weirdness when it comes to Mary Magdalene's world is what happens to her in the moment. Three times, Mary Magdalene is noted for one who is weeping. She's standing outside the tomb, she's weeping. She finally goes inside the tomb. The angel asks, why are you weeping? Funny question, weird. And then thirdly, when she even sees Jesus himself and doesn't even recognize who Jesus is, she thinks he's the gardener who has misplaced the body. That's a funny deduction. He asks her, why, why are you weeping? Three times she's weeping and then in a heartbeat, 
All it takes is one word and everything changes. Jesus says to Mary, Mary. And in that moment, her weeping turns to wonder. And within a few minutes, she's the one telling all the disciples, I've seen the Lord from weeping to wonder to witness. Bam. It all changes that quickly in a heartbeat. That's her story. That's her story. And that is amounting to the weirdness of the gospel, not in spite of the weirdness of the moment, but because of it. And those moments still happen. C.S. Lewis, settled atheist, brilliant um, professor of literature at Oxford, gets into all sorts of friendships with uh, other um, uh, brilliant uh, minds like him, like J.R.R. Tolkien and Owen Barfield, and they go back and forth and they discuss and dispute whether in fact there was a man who was God who died and who was risen again, and they, they went after that for a very long time until one night, there in his room at Magdalen College, haha, uh -huh, pronounced, if you're the English highbrow, Maudlin College, there he is in the college, on his knees, by his bed, praying. And by his own account, in that moment, he says this, you must picture me alone in that room in Maudlin, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. And perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. No, he's not weeping in that moment, but he is certainly distraught about what he might be leaving behind, his settled, comfortable way that allowed him a comfortable form of atheism, and that he might pride in his own autonomy and being able to call his own shots, and he's distraught about leaving that behind. He is, in his own words, dejected about what he might lose if he makes this leap, and yet he is wondered. He's full of wonderment as to what he might gain. And if you know anything about C.S. Lewis, he becomes one of the most profound witnesses to the truth and weirdness of this faith as anybody in the last hundred years. That's his story. Let me give you another story. If you've been with us, you'll remember this scene because it's a scene that I've shown you before and I can't think of a more apt time in which to show it. It's from the film Calvary. It's about an Irish priest. And of all the number of people that he meets and ministers to along the way, and there is one moment, there is one encounter where he meets a French woman who is on vacation with her husband in Ireland. Her husband gets in a car wreck. He is in intensive care. He dies. And this Catholic priest is summoned, prayed by um, Brendan Gleeson, and he administers last rites unto that man. And the scene that you're about to see is from this now um, recently widowed woman in a chapel offering her prayers. Have you performed the last rites many times? Yes. Usually with older people, of course. Have time to prepare for it. Mm. Everybody knows what's coming. It is easier. It's never easy. More understandable, let's say. Less unfair. Situations like this one. People are shocked, the randomness of it. We curse God, 
curse their fellow man. They lose their faith in some cases. They lose their faith? It must not have been much of a faith to begin with, if it is so easy for them to lose it. Yes, but what is faith? For most people, it's the fear of death. Nothing more than that. If that's all it is, it's very easy to lose. He was a good man? Your husband? Yes. He was a good man. We had a very good life together. We loved each other very much. And now, he has gone. And that is not unfair. That is just what happened. But many people don't live good lives. They don't feel love. That is what is unfair. I feel sorry for them. Will you say a prayer with me, Teresa? If there's anyone who had an occasion to begin to rethink her categories, it was like that. If there was anyone who thought that this world was not safe, or that the one who is allegedly behind all things and superintends all things is not good, one could understand why she might go there. And yet in that moment, weeping for the one she loved and the one she has lost, it is her faith in the wonder of God that does what? It strikes wonder in the priest. Wonder about such belief. And in that moment, her wonder in the fa her faith in the wonder of God strikes in him a great wonder of who God is. She's the witness to him. Who is the priest in that moment? She goes from weeping to that wonder she had already become convinced of, and in the moment she becomes a witness unto the one you would expect to be the witness unto her. That's her story. And it's a story in a different frame and in a different setting, but certainly is a parallel to what we find in the weirdness of Mary Magdalene's story. Look, some of you may only know tears right now or know someone who all they know right now is tears of fear and concern or uncertainty or loss. And that just may be the world that you are in and you may think that those tears will never end or that there will never be anything on the other side of those tears. But if there is one story or even two stories or three stories in which weeping becomes wonder, becomes witness, then that can be another story too. And that's not in spite of the weirdness, that's because of the weirdness. That weirdness begins with the women, it continues with the disciples. Mary Magdalene goes and tells two of the disciples. One is called, interestingly, the other disciple. And the other one she tells is Peter. And the first thing that's weird about that is, why is Peter even still part of the story? As one uh, commentator puts uh, Peter, Peter's been through a really bad weekend by this point. He's the one who has spoken with bluster and bravado and that I will die with you. And then when push comes to shove, uh, Peter becomes the guy that says, Jesus? Jesus who? 
in his darkest hour, this one who thought himself so strong and full of conviction, he's the one who leaves Jesus in the darkness. And so one might properly wonder, why is he even still part of the storyline? Why is it Mary Magdalene goes and tells him? What's his point anymore? Why is he part of the storyline? And then it gets weirder still. For whatever reason, John, who writes this account, describes the foot race that ensues with the other disciple and Peter hoofing it to this place, wondering what they're going to see. And they get, and the other disciple gets there first, and you think, good, he's going to see there first. But he stays outside and he lingers until Peter shows up. And what does he do? He goes in first. That's funny. Why, why rush and run and get there first and then let somebody else go in? But that's the weirdness only continues there. And Peter sticks his head in, and what does he find? Look, if you're the other disciple and Peter, running through your head right now is that the best plausible theory to explain why Jesus' body is not there is that someone has taken it. That's what Mary thought, right? You're the gardener. You must have misplaced it. You must have taken it. They get there, and what do they find? Not usually how a grave robber would leave the scene of a crime. The clothes are there. That's weird. If you're going to take the body, you probably don't spend a little time undressing it before you take it away. And what's even weirder is that the cloth, the face cloth, the bit on Jesus' face, it's been folded. He, he did laundry. And then he, and he places that, that face cloth on another spot. And so everything that they're not expecting to find, they find. And everything they're expecting to find, they don't find. The cloths, the face cloth folded up and put nicely away like you're going away for summer camp. And nobody. And that's weird. And that's what happens. And in that moment, it says of the other disciple that he saw and believed. He saw and believed. He, he saw just that. He didn't see Jesus. He heard about Jesus from Mary Magdalene. He goes into that weird setting, and sure enough, nothing. And it says he saw and he believed. He saw enough to believe. He moves, like Mary moved, from weeping to wonder to witness. He moves from confusion to conversion. He'd seen enough. And it was enough for him to believe, not in spite of the weirdness, but because of it. Guillaume Bignon was a budding French student. He was raised in a nominal Catholic family. He kind of disses all that once he reaches into young adulthood. He, he goes through university and finishes that up. He starts to excel in music, in athletics. He becomes so good at volleyball, he eventually gets invited to become on the French national team. So he's playing every weekend, and he's going all over the world, and he's on vacation at some point in the Caribbean. And he's out hiking with a buddy. And they're just hiking around, and up drives these two girls, these two American girls, not dolls, actually adult women, right? They're in a car and they're lost and they see these two guys and they ask for directions and the girls say, look, we'll give you a ride, just show us how to get to where we wanna go. And so Guillaume and his buddy, they hop in the back of the car, they start talking and what does Guillaume start to do? He starts hitting on the girls, right? Starts trying to get to know them that they might enjoy each other and eventually it gets a little bit too uh, racy in the moment that the two girls say, you know what, thanks, um, we're Christians, we kinda don't roll that way. We appreciate that, um, not for us. And as soon as that, as he hears those words, Guillaume Bion feels a certain challenge, and he's out to um, disabuse them of that faith and to sort of laugh at them and try to discredit anything that they might believe. And you know that happens, and they eventually depart, and nothing comes of it. And you know, he, on a whim, 
in, in sort of the days following that encounter, he picks up a Bible that he finds somewhere and he starts paging through it. And on a on sort of a dare almost, he prays this funky, um, almost half-hearted prayer where he says, look, God, if you're real, then um, show yourself to me. Just reveal yourself to me. Within two weeks of this half-hearted prayer, uh, Guillaume Bignon's shoulder goes out unexpectedly, no reason. He doesn't have an accident. He doesn't have an injury. It just goes out. And he goes to a doctor. They do the scans. They do the workup. And the doctor can't explain why he's out. And he just says, it's out. You're just going to have to rest it. And so all of a sudden, Guillaume Bion has Sundays off. He's off the team. He's benched. And he's wondering what's up. And there's a church near his, where he's staying, and he just kind of continues his little quasi-pilgrimage there, and he, he sticks his head in the church, kind of like, in his own mind, going to a zoo. Uh, see what the animals who, who dwell under the steeple are like. And he goes and sits on the back row, and he listens to the sermon and doesn't hear a word of it. Don't get any ideas. And he gets up, and he tries to you know step out before anybody notices that he's leaving, and just before he exits, he has this overwhelming feeling that comes over him that he says to himself, I, this is ridiculous. I have got to figure this thing out. And so he sheepishly approaches the pastor at the back of the church, and there he asks the preacher a question if he might have some conversations with him. And the conversation begins, and that turns to weeks and months of conversation, whereby at some point, Guillaume Bion realizes that he sees himself in a different light that he's moved from confusion to conversion. That he'd come to see Jesus in a way that he wasn't expecting, and though he had never heard Jesus, never seen Jesus, had just enough evidence to believe in Jesus, such that, in his own words, he puts it this way, I was not looking for God. I neither sought him nor wanted him. He reached out, loved me while I was still a sinner, broke my defenses, and decided to pour out his undeserved grace. It wasn't as if conversion was joining another team. It was a conversion in which he saw with new eyes. He saw himself differently. He saw his need differently. And finally, he saw in God something called grace that he hadn't reckoned with. Look, this other disciple that is curiously referred to in John's Gospel, he is otherwise or elsewhere referred to as the beloved disciple. And if you catch that phrase, you might think that seems rather weirdly arrogant to be naming yourself the beloved disciple. But if you reflect upon what he means, he's not saying that he's beloved and others are not beloved. Peter is no less beloved. He's saying this, to know Jesus is to love Jesus. But to love Jesus is to know that you are beloved by him in spite of a lot of reasons why he might not want to consider you beloved. To know yourself as one who is beloved is to know yourself like Guillaume Bion knew himself, as one who received an undeserved grace. And we know who also understood that. We know it was Peter, the one who weirdly is still in the storyline. This moment is actually bookended by two far more poignant moments. What happened before, we've already said. He had a chance to speak for and defend, and instead he denies and abandons. And so you got to wonder what's going through Peter's mind when he hears that it might be possible that Jesus has risen from the dead. you got to think that he may be thinking to himself, oh no, <laughs> wasn't bargaining for that. Maybe I'll actually have to see him. Maybe I will experience the same rejection from him that he experienced from me. And that's the moment before. And in the moment after this moment, 
If you know Peter's story, you know that he, in these days following the resurrection, went back to, knew, to do what he only knew to do, and that was to fish. You know, when in doubt, do what you know, do what you love. And he's out with his buddies fishing, and he smells a charcoal fire over on the beach. The same smell he smelled the night he betrayed Jesus. Same charcoal fire. And there he sees someone making food. While fishing, smelling a fire, he hears somebody inviting them to come over and have breakfast. And there it is, he's Jesus. And by the end of that meal, the one who thought he was a failure to Jesus actually comes to discover that he's been restored to friendship with Jesus. That's the weirdness of this gospel. The one who was confused becomes converted. And the one who thought he was a failure to Jesus is actually reminded that he was a friend of Jesus. That's its weirdness. But there's one other reason why it's weird, and it's where all the weirdness sort of hangs together. It's where all the weirdness depends on, and it always will rely and rest squarely on the shoulders of Jesus. Apart from him, this is all just weird but worthless. And the most obvious reason why we would say that the weirdness rests squarely on him is because he's alive. The one who was dead, the one who was a dead man, is now walking again. The one who was lifeless has suddenly become deathless. He is risen. As one theologian put it, if Jesus had never been risen from the dead, we would have never heard of him. And in that moment, the one who was not live was again alive. But what gets the most airtime for weirdness in this whole passage is this kind of funny exchange that he has with Mary Magdalene once she stops thinking that he's the local gardener and realizes it's him. And he says to Mary Magdalene in verse 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go and tell your brothers that I am ascending to my father. Okay, we want to talk about weird, there's weird. What? Don't cling to him? He's ascending? What? What does that even mean? It's weird on its face. When he says, don't cling to me, it's not Jesus saying, hey, 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 don't, don't, don't wrinkle the new tunic. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I can't stay. Don't hold on to me in such a way that you think I'm going to stay here in the same way that I am. I've got to go. In fact, as he said elsewhere, it's better if I do go. It's better if I do ascend to my father. Because then I will send one unto you who will counsel you and remind you and empower you to think as I did and love as I have. You need me to go. Don't hold on to me. Don't grip me. I'm going to ascend. What he's saying is, I'm going to be gone soon. But just not gone, gone. In fact, I'll be with. Might be a funny way of illustrating it, but my kids just rewatched uh, that one of those Pixar films, the one called Big Hero 6. If you know that story, it, uh, it sort of focuses on a STEM lab with these uh, young adults who are prospering and working in that world and through their science. And as they come to develop all sorts of new technologies, uh, one of them develops this amazing medical robot. He kind of looks like a Michelin man. They call him Baymax. He's kind of like an inflatable, uh, brilliant medical robot. And uh, he, he and his cohort and his colleagues, they develop all sorts of things, but Baymax is the, is the cute one in the whole story. Well, that developer, he dies. He dies in a tragic accident, and his younger brother, whose name is Hero, sort of takes up the mantle of his older brother's research and continues along and gets to know Baymax. Well, 
as the story unfolds, you know, scientists are science. Sometimes the scientists go bad, and there's one bad dude who starts to use science for untoward aims. And and one of those untoward aims is to mess with the the parallel universe. And they they find a way to get this portal between this universe and this world and that other universe. And so they break through and this woman goes through kind of like an astronaut. Are you, are we all smoking yet? This is crazy. I know. Just stay clear. And so they open up this portal into this new dimension and this astronaut kind of woman goes in there and then she gets stuck and the portal closes. And Hero, now inheriting the, the mantle from his dead brother and now endeared to and loving this lovable, brilliant medical robot named Baymax, they are able to, to transport themselves into this portal and into this domain to rescue this woman who's stuck there. And while they're there, Baymax is damaged. They've come to rescue the girl and Baymax gets damaged. And in this scene, Baymax has an exchange with young Hero to explain that he knows a way they can get out, but it will come at a cost. Baymax! My thrusters are inoperable. Just grab hold! <sighs> there is still a way I can get you both to safety. cannot deactivate until you say you are satisfied with your care. No, 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 wait, wait, wait. What about you? You are my patient. Baymax, Your no. health is my only concern. Stop, no, I, I'm, I'm gonna figure out. Are you out. satisfied with your care? No, there's gotta be another way. I'm not gonna leave you here. I'll think of something. There is no time. Are you satisfied with your care? Please, no. I can't lose you two. Hero. I will always be with you. <laughs> I'm satisfied with my care. Baymax is damaged, but the only way anybody's going to survive is if Baymax lets his little glove become a thruster to help Hero and the hurt young woman leave the portal. And surely enough, so he does, but Hero must leave Baymax behind, and so he is lost to him. But Baymax makes the ultimate sacrifice that another might live. But in the last scene of the film, that glove Hero has kept, and he takes it back to his own research room. And he looks at the glove, and he notices that the glove's fingers are clenched. And he opens the clenched glove, and he finds software. Baymax's software. A little disc that had 
if you will, Baymax's soul encoded on it. It was Baymax's very code, such that then Hero creates a whole new body for Baymax and puts that code in there, and sure enough, Baymax is in fact always with him. Now, that's a long way to make a short point, but friends, here's the point. The one who gave himself up entirely to rescue us from a, an uncertain and awful future is the one who, in the course of his actions, promises both to be with us and then sends a part of himself, in fact, to be with us. What is weird is not just that Jesus was once dead and now alive, but what's weird about him is that he was present to some then, but now is present to anyone who calls upon him in faith now. And all of that is not in spite of the weirdness, but because of it. And I might say to close this sermon, you wouldn't want it any other way. You wouldn't want this to be somehow less weird than it is. You wouldn't want any of that that you've just heard to sort of be cut out like Thomas Jefferson did with his own Bible, cutting out all the supernatural parts and just leaving the ethical stuff in place. You wouldn't want that. And while what you want does not make any of it true, let me tell you why you wouldn't want it any way otherwise. Freddie DeBoer is a man in his 30s who was very frank about his, very frank about his own struggle with mental illness. And recently, he, he, he lost a dear friend, one that has just cut him to the quick. And in a recent article that he wrote in the wake of his friend's death, he said this, Freddie DeBoer is a man with, without faith and with only hope but he said this, I want to see my friend and he's gone forever. I feel like I've been cut in half. All I want is to hear his voice again with that endless conviction telling me that someday we will understand all things. All things. All things. Deeply candid. Deeply poignant. Deeply raw moment from someone who only thinks that his friend is gone and that there is nothing else to believe or hope in. He, in just those few words, encapsulates precisely why you wouldn't want this gospel to be anything but the weirdness that it is. You know why you want it to be weird? Because you're looking for all the things that it offers that you're not gonna be able to find elsewhere and not in the same way. The reason why you wouldn't want it to be weird is first of all because of dignity. Everybody wants it, everybody craves it, everybody assumes it. You know why this weird gospel shows you dignity? Because if you'll just think for a moment, if the one who is responsible for all things chooses to reveal himself to you, you're nothing, I'm nothing, and still he does. What is man that you are mindful of him, the psalmist says in Psalm 8. That's dignity. But for that man to enter into our weakness, that God rather, to enter into our weakness, for God to become flesh, that shows us the highest compliment and also our deepest need, that we needed God to rescue us from ourselves. Look, when it comes to dignity, here's the thing, especially in this time of distress and duress and uncertainty and loss and fear and death, whether it's true or imagined or massaged or um, um, otherwise, there are many of us in this day and age in this moment, who are struggling to think that they have any worth, any dignity, and they are on an edge. As they say, a lot of us are uh, three days away from a nervous breakdown, and most of us are on day two. If you want dignity, you find no better resource than in who Jesus is. And some of us, however, have sought to build that dignity 
and find that worth in so many other things that now have found to be anything but a sure foundation. But this dignity, this offer that comes from him, it comes from the weirdness, not in spite of the weirdness. You wouldn't want it any other way. You want that weirdness because of the dignity that he affords you in himself. You also want that weirdness because of the welcome that comes to you in spite of yourself. If Jesus was not only glad to die for us, but had to die for us, to make us not merely servants, not merely friends, but brethren at the cost of his own blood, then that means that you and I must contend with the fact that there are things that we regret, things that we cannot undo, things that will always be part of our story, that in him are forgiven. And that forgiveness comes to us by no other route than the truth of its weirdness. But lastly, the reason why you wouldn't want this thing any less weird than it already is, is because in the same way that Freddie DeBoer wishes that he had his friend back and that he would come to an understanding of all things, all things, all things, in the same way that Jesus transitioned from one who was lifeless to the one who was deathless, that is the promise of the weirdness of the gospel. That though ye die, yet shall ye live. That in him there is resurrection. And that's weird, and I know it, but it's inseparable from its truth. And that's why you wouldn't want it any other way. Garrison Keillor put it this way when it comes to his own belief and why he goes to church. He goes, that's what I go to church for, to be surprised by faith and to fall apart. Without the resurrection, we would just be a wonderful club of very nice people with excellent taste in music and literature. But when it hits you, what you've actually subscribed to, it blows the top of your head off. Nothing that is merely true and not weird will ever blow the top of your head off. And though you and I maybe don't like to be weird and maybe we would prefer to entrust ourselves to beliefs that are as far away from weirdness as could be, when it comes to what you and I are all looking for, dignity, forgiveness, and the very possibility of life beyond our own deaths, you will find it in a no less weird place than here. It's a lot weirder than wearing a bow tie in a forest but it's a weirdness that none of us would want to separate ourselves from. Amen, church. Amen.